Welcome to The Bell Curve, the podcast for aspiring entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Jake Zapata. And I'm your co-host, Tom Hittinger. We launched this podcast to help entrepreneurs kickstart their ideas and early ventures. We're all used to the biopics from titans of industry, speaking from the mountaintops of massive companies, but often miss the authentic stories of entrepreneurs in the trenches, actively climbing the mountain. Here, we share our stories and those of our esteemed guests, co-founders and executives, breaking down what propelled them to success and how they braved adversity and uncertainty. Let's jump in. CEO and you're the co-founder of Wove. Um, Wove is, how long has Wove been around at this point? Probably about 18 months, uh, pretty close, maybe 15 months. Um, And Wove is on a mission basically to deliver the world's best engagement ring shopping experience. Just pulled this from your website. And uh, right now you guys are the only engagement ring company that builds you custom replica rings uh, for basically like an at-home try-on experience. And so you just finished raising a large seed around to continue scaling the company and basically put more rings uh, on the hands of millennials. Are, yeah. are, are most of your customers millennials at this point? Like, have you done the kind of like a, a large enough sample size? Uh, yeah, they're, they're like kind of 25 to 35 year old successful people in tech, finance, private equity, real estate. So a lot of your listeners would be the classic kind of woe early majority well uh and yeah nail the intro jake thanks so much we uh <laughs> we are trying to build the world's best engagement ring copying experience uh we we actually think we deliver it now as entails of competitors uh and now it's just about you know delivering that in a, in a clean communication and marketing message to, to share that with the world first we wanted to make sure that we could actually deliver that experience which is what we've spent the first uh, 12 months of the company working on, uh, and now we can actually deliver that custom replica experience with which both of you uniquely are our customers of both. And, uh, and then from there, we, uh, we're really just focused on some growth and expansion, which is the stage that the company is at now, which faces its own challenges, but is, is a lot more fun. Uh, than the zero to one page, I'm sure we can talk about. Well, what I love about your experience that you take customers through, Brian, is it's so difficult to trust something that you can't see. And you guys manage to like embed trust in the process. Um, I appreciate that. And also appreciate that uh, this is not your first go around. So you're like a serial entrepreneur. Uh, you, you and Jake actually started a company, digital health company. And in addition to that, um, you're a, an army ranger, you're an army captain, you did soar, tours overseas in Syria and Afghanistan, um, you earned a bronze star. So again, I would argue you've been at the top of the bell curve for a while, but um, I'm excited to kind of hear, hear a bit more about your journey there and uh, the, the ups and downs that I'm sure have come along the way. Yeah, it's uh, it's been an exciting exciting uh, life to say the least. Uh, this is actually the second podcast I've done in like a couple of days uh, using the same Riverside <laughs> platform uh, focused on on the journey we've been on and on the last podcast Tim the host just stopped me and he was like it sounds like that you and Andrew are just after the most painful path you could possibly pick and that's what you've kind of <laughs> chosen time and time again and uh, true or untrue I, I think uh, I pursued things that are really hard, uh, and mm. it, they've been very hard for me. Like it hasn't been an easy path. Like, um, I think I watched some people go through this path and it feels easy for them. It's felt super painful for me every step of the way. Uh, but you just sort of mm. get used to the grind and the reward of the grinds. Um, not staying focused on the outcomes, but staying focused on the inputs. And I think that's mm. like where I find joy uh and so happy to dive into like any of these moments of input that uh you guys think the listeners would be interested in but uh that's just a little context for how i I think about life that's awesome man and you know we'll jump into some of the questions that we kind of have prepared for you but for the listeners um and so people kind of have the full context brian and i as tom mentioned before did start a company uh we kind of did it right in the middle of the pandemic and it was a digital health company uh, we actually first met in Afghanistan, both on our second tours, and then, you know, worked at a startup in Boston, um, 
and then we started the digital health company. That digital health company, we raised about 3.1 million bucks from a few VCs, one of them being initialized capital. Uh, you know, we ended up moving on from that company after about a year, but basically got it from zero to one. And, um, you know, now Brian decided to go off and, you know, co-found Wove with Drew. That's been uh, so far a smash hit success um, and a lot more to come. And uh, I do podcasting now, so we're uh, <laughs> both doing what we love. Um, but, yeah, you know, Tom, how about you get us started off with kind of just setting the foundation yeah. for our listeners that are in college and kind of post-grad here. All right. If, if this is your second podcast in a couple of days, I'm glad that you had a little warm-up round. <laughs> this one's going to be tough. I'm going to throw some heaters at you, all right? Some, some knuckleballs, if you will. Um, so I love that you, you kind of laid the foundation of you try to do really difficult things. Like you kind of look at the mountaintop and just say, I'm going to, I'm going to climb that um, no matter where it is. And so I feel like from what I know about your experience, you even started doing that at West Point, right? So when you, West Point, the, the most prestigious military academy in the world, you went there and remind me, what, what was it that you majored in and that you actually were trying to do out of West Point? Yeah, I majored in systems engineering, uh, which is sort of the study of a combination of supply chain, logistics, and computer-aided design, uh, which are like all the things I love and all the things that I actually use at Wove. Uh, so I've just been waiting 10 years to put that degree to work. Uh, it's, it's, <laughs> so finally doing it. Uh, and I spent a lot of my time at the academy, uh, either training or attending uh, some pretty challenging training design for, for special operators. And so that was always my goal coming out of the academy is to have an opportunity to serve with incredibly motivated, incredibly talented people that, you know, I'm quite frankly just humbled to have been in the same organizations as. And so, uh, you know, spent the time at the academy really focused on that with a combination of also having uh, a lot of fun with my friends, uh, you know, which people don't often equate West Point with fun, but uh, the the type of type A individual there likes to live in extremis in all scenarios uh, from, you know, attending some of the hardest training to, uh, having some of the hardest nights out in New York City. And so uh, that's just a, a snapshot of the kind of individuals that go there uh, looking to do looking to do uh, wild things in life. Uh, and so that's kind of a quick wrap of what that experience was like. Uh, it was you know, a high discipline environment uh, in retrospect, uh, a lot of extreme hours and extreme focus. Uh, but what came out of that on the other end was, you know, me as an individual having the ability to prioritize probably as the most important thing I learned at the academy of, you know, you can only do one or two or three things really well. And, you know, you could probably only do like two things really well. And in that, um, I've driven that into you know, how I approach training, how I approach, you know, leading small teams and, you know, what I chose to do, you know, in my profession inside my roles and so that's that's uh you can skip west point uh and just know that you can only do one or two things really well and uh <laughs> you're, good, you're good to go go to cornell boom yeah you can you can do what jake and i did which is uh skip class and um you know just really really take it easy some semesters uh which i, I take it is not really gonna fly at west point uh <laughs> it, it wastes a little i know but so I feel like you have some wild stories from West Point. I actually haven't even asked you, but I, I remember like some mentionings of like very crazy things being so commonplace there. Like do people just box? I've heard something about boxing being a really thing. Yeah. So ev really, <laughs> yeah, every cadet uh, has to go through boxing as a man. So I'll, I'll, the, the listeners are just probably like, if there are Cornell listeners, they'll just be psyched about it at West Point, but I'll just give you a snapshot, <laughs> right? Uh, uh of like some of the ridiculousness that is this place, right? Like, you know, every day starts at 6 a.m., right? Like you have formation, you go to class from like seven to five. There's like no bricks, like it's classes. Like it's, it's a dense academic institution. That's so lame, dude. Uh, and, then, <laughs> and then you go through like some physical activity, some like some club sport, or if you're a division one athlete, you go do that as well, which is insane. Um, and that's usually from like five to seven and then seven to 10 is like a concentrated study period. 
to do your work. Uh, and then you just like rinse and repeat that for like four years. Um, and, <laughs> uh, and you come out the other end, having learned some discipline, uh, learn how to like fit that in with having a good time with your friends, uh, which is extremely limited and, and what they, what they allow, like as a freshman, you're not allowed to talk outside, uh, which people obviously seem to find entertaining. Um, <laughs> what? Oh, you would have uh, failed. You would have failed so fast. I'm so glad I didn't do yeah. this. You can't. You can't talk to other human beings while you're outdoors. Correct. Yeah, that's that's correct. Um, real doozy, uh, especially <laughs> big, joke, big jokester like me. Um, uh, but but the the and it's been the same way since since, since uh, 1802 or whenever whenever it was it started. Uh, and the whole point of it is is to just teach discipline, right? Use every opportunity you are alive at the academy to create systems uh, of discipline, right? Um, and it's like any human could do this. It's like many, many might choose not to. It's not, not the actual skill of, of not talking outside, but it's the actual constant awareness of what environment you are in, who's around you, mm -hmm. right? And then it's like, of course, you're still going to talk to your buddies outside, but like you better have situational awareness when the upperclassmen are around, which is a very valuable skill to all, always be aware of your surroundings. And so... Um, so we have on record that you broke that That's rule. That's correct, Tom. I appreciate that. I, I appreciate that you guys had, you know, like you said, discipline is like such a fantastic word. So I, I'm curious, you, you've kept saying that you all, haven't always been at the top of the bell curve. I have to ask, grade-wise, like achievement-wise at West Point, where were you on the bell curve? I was like, I was like a top 10% guy. So like, I was not a, you know, there's like these extreme, like top one percenters. I couldn't hang with those individuals, but I served as the bridge between like the, uh, the really smart oh, people that we needed a lot of help from and like physics and stuff. And like the, the rest of my friends who were like a little more uh, focused on like the physical military side. And so, you know, I'm just yeah. trying to pull everyone up um, and just get, get everyone to, uh, to graduate with good enough grades. And so where you lived after graduation was directly based on your performance uh, at West Point. So every cadet, really? every semester, and then finally is like OML graded based on physical military and academic. And then there's X amount of slots all over the world. And so, uh, I really wanted to live in Germany, so I, uh, I I tried really really hard to get just good enough to make it to live uh, live in Germany, uh, and I and I did. Uh, so you're like you're definitely incentivized to uh, to do well enough to get what you want out of it. Interesting. And Germany, like, are you just a big like brat guy? It's just like, just like a, it's generally a better place than like Louisiana or a lot of the other alternatives uh, to live. And so, yeah, I mean, I wanted to like experience to like live in Europe and uh, hang out and drink beers with friends. Uh, and, and so like Germany was like the perfect place to do that. Uh, you live like in the, like, you live like in a German city, like, um, and you just like get the exposure, of, you know, different, it's just completely different culture. Um, and so like, I've always valued that, um, I've spent a lot of time living in a lot of different countries and, uh, yeah, it just makes you like second guess, like, uh, everything about the place where you live right now. Brian. So huh. one of the things that we kind of like talked about last episode, uh, that we kind of wanted to talk to you about is like, I would probably consider you somebody who handles stuff pretty well. <clears throat> you know, this podcast is going to be like, distributed first probably at Cornell and like other like elite universities um, just based off like the first people that we brought onto the podcast. So you did pretty well, you know, you were incentivized, but it sounds like there was a lot of stress and pressure, especially at West Point, maybe in later years to do really well academically amongst other things that I know that you're, you're graded on. How do you handle like that stress, especially like, you know, we're in a maybe like, almost post pandemic environment, but in the height of the pandemic, I know universities like Cornell had really high suicide rates. I think Cornell had the highest suicide rate in the country. You know, there's a lot of pressure that students place on themselves. They think everything rides on this moment. If they don't perform well, or if they fail a test, or 
if they get a C in a class that their whole life's going to fall apart, they're not going to be able to get that investment banking job or be able to go to med school or what have you. Um, what do you have to say about like managing not only the expectations that you have for yourself that are externally placed on you, but um, managing the stress on the inside so you're still having a good time and, you know, yeah. being able no, to I think, have the I, output? I think it's a really important question, Jake, and I want to separate it into two parts. Uh, the, the, the first part is your day-to-day you know, stress management and expectation management. And the second part, which I'm of no expert, but I think is incredibly important is, is thinking about, you know, mental health writ large. And so we'll, we'll tackle the first part of this question, which is how do you kind of cope with just high stress with expectations? And there's not a lot of magic to this. Uh, It's just, it's, it's how simple it is, is almost uh, counterintuitive, right? Like, um, it is, what is your circle of influence, right? Like, what are the things that you have direct effect on? And for some people, like, it helps to write it down. And then what is everything outside of that circle that you don't have a direct effect on? And you're going to realize in many instances that the things outside the circle are the things that are driving your stress and anxiety. And I think the, the physically seeing that, physically taking out a paper and, and writing that down makes a huge difference. If you're someone that is experiencing like most listeners, probably quite a bit of stress. Like, I'd encourage you to just pause the podcast, take out a piece of paper, draw a circle, and write down your stressors, either inside or outside the circle. And the things that are inside the circle, you now know, okay, I can focus on these, or I can create a system that takes care of this for me, right? Um, and and that's, that's like a whole other topic about creating systems to solve problems for you. But I think that small practice is huge. I also think thinking a lot about what goes into your body and the amount of rest you give your body is something that people drastically understate. Um, so like I slept like seven, eight hours a night at West Point, which is not typical. Um, most people sleep like four hours a night because they're so stressed uh, and they're trying to get, catch up with all this homework and have all this fun. Um, I sleep seven to eight hours a night now. Uh, and that, stre- that sleep ultimately like helps your brain recover it lets you prioritize, um, and I think it's it's doing those small things around sleep and self care and perspective that allow you to be great. I think I think like there are a lot of good operators that operate on a high stress level that don't sleep a lot, that don't take care of their bodies. Uh, but like I don't think you'll ever be great until you tackle and own your self care and really prioritize it. And I think for a lot of folks, the journey from 18 to 30 is is when they start to figure that out. The sooner you can figure that out, the better you're going to be leaps and bounds. And even figure it out a year earlier, putting those practices in place will have an outsized effect on on your ability as a as a performer and an operator. So there's that piece. The second piece of which I am no expert, but it's like is the importance of of mental health, right? And these two things are very interrelated. Um, but I think the destigmatizing of of therapy is huge, right? Like uh, I'm a big advocate for therapy. Uh, I'm a big advocate for, for reaching out for help. Uh, I think, you know, Jake, you're probably at the intersection of the most effective communities in the world, which is this kind of extreme type A, uh, I mean, you're at some of these more depressing uh, winter schools like, you know, Cornell or U Chicago. And then it's also military veterans are, are some of the most extreme populations affected by uh, by suicide. And so you're probably surrounded by this quite a bit. And uh, one of the best things that happened out of COVID while, while the terrible uh, pandemic was that it, people started to normalize therapy. Um, my partner's a therapist uh, and like she changes people's lives. Um, it's, it's unbelievable the effect that, that, that you can have on people when you're truly a trained uh, licensed clinician and like if you're at a place like Cornell uh, or an Ivy League school, like it's, it's probably covered uh, in your tuition. So like reach out for help. Um, the right solution is not like being a constant drag on the people around you. It's like go straight to the, go straight to a professional and like, uh, and, and get it, you know, and, and, and like start to work on it. And like, that's the next, like, that's the next way to level up as a professional. It's like stop professional athletes. Think about their physical health and they surround themselves with, physical therapists, they surround themselves with doctors to be at the best of their game, but like 
we're all like knowledge workers, right? And like we should be surrounding ourselves with people that help us operate at the best of uh, our mental capacity. So uh, diatribe complete on the importance of mental health. Uh, back to you guys. Couldn't agree more with everything you just said, Brian. Uh, I've had the good fortune of meeting your partner, Trish, and uh, I, I believe she's an LCSW, right? LCSW, that's it. So my dad and your partner are uh, in the same line of work, and yeah, can't, can't echo enough how, how powerful and um, just transformative the, the process of going through therapy can be for anyone in any, any life stage. Uh, and I, I like that. Do you feel this way, Brian? I feel like Gen Z has normalized that. Yeah, great, like, great work. Yeah. If you're a Gen Z, or uh, everyone's yeah. always been like, like picking on Gen Z is like they've done so many amazing things culturally. Um, the idea of like the company man is like gone, right? The idea that like mental health yeah. is 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 not its own health is gone. So uh, yeah, the uh, the seltzer water is back. Um, that's huge. So. <laughs> <laughs> And high news. And high news. Spike seltzer water. Every version of seltzer water, uh, low and no alcohol, uh, is, is, is hip. Um, so right on. Because you, you've reported to, both of you, Jake and, and Brian, you've reported to generals and colonels who probably would scoff at the idea of therapy, right? It's like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Like, put your head down, don't complain, nose to the grindstone. Not that the people you've specifically reported to, but there's a pervasive culture, largely in like military and other kind of old school environments that probably would would literally scoff at the idea of like therapy being a, a critical part of, of life. Yeah. Would you agree? I, I think it's the old school environment in general that, that you're capturing, Tom. I, I will, I'll give the, uh, the army is moving in the right direction. Um, yeah less so than by the time Dick and I got out, but just from an outside perspective now, uh, they're they are trying to be a more progressive institution and account for that, uh, as evidenced by uh, their new release saying uh, naps are okay and potentially healthy, health, healthy for you. Uh, so that was huge. Dude, I would have uh, thrived in that army, Brian, just I taking know. naps. Yeah, was, <laughs> Dick and I were a pre-nap army, but it turns out like we like, uh, <laughs> Don't uh, don't sleep at night uh, because you're on a mission that you might want to nap during the day. So making huge, <laughs> huge strides. Uh, shout out to you uh, at Step Down. <laughs> I love that. All right, Brian. Uh, dude, thanks for going into that. Um, weirdly, I didn't start really learning about therapy, so we started building a therapy company. So um, it's been actually kind of interesting to pull a lot of those insights and kind of bring them into our personal lives. I think the thing I got the most from just kind of stress management uh, is just simplifying life, honestly. Like the your exercise with the internal and external like circle of influence and what you can control, I think, is spot on. But let's transition. We do want to talk about um, kind of your life as an entrepreneur. You know, I think we'll just do kind of like a softball question. You know, we kind of want to know a little bit more about how you founded Wove. Uh, you do have a co-founder. His name's uh, Drew. And... You know, what is it that you do uh, as a day-to-day, -day, like, in a CEO? Like, that kind of startup titles can be kind of, uh, you know, mean a lot of different things. You know, when you're the CEO going from zero to one, like, what are you doing? Yeah, I'll, I'll answer the first part of your question first, and then we'll get into day-to-day, -day, which I think is uh, often, like, really unclear to people and what they're most interested in. But um, Wove was was born out of a desire to, to fix a really, really bad consumer experience. And so that's more or less what I, what I have been interested in uh, since, for as long as I've been alive, or at least I kind of skipped, skipped the intro, but like um, I was, you know, I was, I was of the generation that like got their first cell phone when, when they were in like sixth or seventh grade. And the idea that um, technology can make everything better was pervasive in every experience that I had in life, right? And so every time I had a, a bad experience in the grocery store, pizza delivery, right? Like I was just like the kid with the napkin being like, this could be so much better, right? And the army gave me a vehicle to create better experiences. You have almost unlimited autonomy as a leader in the military to create the environment, the systems, the processes that you want within your own organization. And so I was just creating user experiences over and over and over again for the organization that I was a part of. Uh, and then when I got out of the military, it, I had the opportunity to do that 
amongst multiple companies, first as an early employee, then as founders to really create experiences for the entire world, not just for an organization. Uh, and so in that, extremely interested in experiences that are really painful, really, really painful. Uh, and buying an engagement ring is one of, in my personal experience, the more painful experience you can go through. I tried to do it in 2018. I missed hard, um, didn't get engaged, didn't get married, excuse me. Uh, and so I knew the problem was real. And Drew, my co-founder, came to me and with a great, a great point in time. And he said, hey, like, I think this, I think this problem is real. Like, um, I think I know our first target market. I don't know a lot about you know, creating businesses from scratch, venture financing, software development. And I was like, okay, well, I know all about those things. Um, I don't know a ton about jewelry. And he's like, I got you covered. I know everything about jewelry. <laughs> I've been running a jewelry company. I'm like, okay, cool. So uh, Drew and I teamed up and kind of threw out a lot of the old assumptions about the way that like one uh, old tool jeweler said you had to operate, started listening to the customer and saying like, what would be you know ideal and perfect for you? And we had the, this like kind of cool moment where uh, some of our first customers were actually guys that were deployed overseas. And so the first problem that we started solving for, for them, like our first customer was in Jordan, I think was like, hey, I want to like figure out how to like design this ring remotely. Um, I want to make sure it's perfect. And so like we like solved the problem for one customer and we created them a replica ring. Uh, and so that they could see it, they could design it remotely and they got it. And he was like, yep, like this is it. Like, uh, like where do I pay, right? And it's like the classic, like you don't have a bank account, like you don't have a, like, a, like a, 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 an entity set up, which is like how I would encourage everybody just like, create value, solve a problem for a customer within a massive market, uh, and then go from there. And so we went on to kind of start with this initial entry point market, uh, serving initially folks in the military because like they were so transient, they didn't really have a jeweler. We could provide this really unique value prop to them with this replica ring, try on experience. And then they were also, they also wanted something unique, like they didn't want the off the shelf from case jewelers. And so they were a nice entry point market. And then from that, uh, people regardless of affiliation and location started asking for the same experience because it sucks to go into a store and have someone sell you a set of 20 rings in front of you trying to convince you one of those 20 rings is the perfect ring for your partner to wear forever. <laughs> and it also sucks to buy online a picture for something that you're gonna wear forever without being able to try it on. And so it's like we solve for both of these problems and did so with a really elegant consumer experience. and you know, also knew that we could build the highest quality rings by building everything right here in the United States. And so uh, with those three problems, people just sort of started coming to us over time when we told our story and uh, that's where Woke grew. So back to part two, Jake, which is like, what do you do day to day? Like your job changes uh, every week, month or quarter, depending on the size of the company. And so like you just need to be sort of a incredibly adaptive um, I like to like a quick, a quick, like hot tip for like folks that are starting companies. Like you get to set priorities for as many days, like as, uh, you have people in your company. So like, if it's just you, like you get to set priorities one day at a time, like, because that's like the level of feedback loop and the size of project that you can be taking on. Um, when you have a five person company, which is like usually you, a co-founder and like a couple contractors I'm talking here, like you get to go one week at a time in your priorities. And like, that's the size of project and the testing loop that you get to tackle on. So we have like 20 folks at Woke. Um, I, like I still set priorities by, by week. They don't change as much, but um, you know, I, I still kind of follow that, that mantra of being able to quickly move the company. Uh, and your day to day is really focused on like where your area of expertise is. So I just kind of do, I do, I do the CEO things, right? Which is fundraise, investor relations, make sure the company's capitalized, set the vision, set the North Star, and like ultimately hold books accountable. But like from a time perspective, like that's not 60 hours, right? Like that's like um, kind of like a lot of thought and like a couple hours of work a week. Uh, and then you're also like an individual contributor. Like there is no time in an early stage startup for a full-time strategic like doesn't exist, like get your hands on the keyboard and work. 
Uh, and so, <laughs> uh, don't tell that to NBA guys, man. Do not tell them. <laughs> they can make the, the DCF model. We'll be fine. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I split my time between digital product and marketing. Uh, my co-founder splits his time between the sales team and the the production team of the rings. And so that's kind of how we split the company. Uh, and I love deploying product. I love thinking about architecture. I love talking to engineers, like, um, and then like marketing is like all about clear, a mixture of clear communication, creativity and data analytics. Um, and so I'm really, uh, pretty tight on the data analytics side. I can bring that value to us. Uh, I'm, I'm actually a pretty creative guy. Like I like pretty into, um, like creation writing, uh, and you know, there's some portions of marketing where I like I need help, and so that's why we have an awesome team of great content creator, a great growth marketer, uh, and so they're they're really bringing value and and kind of speaking directly to our persona uh, in a clear way that that, that speaks to them. Uh, and then I'll I'll measure and iterate based on some of the things they put out in the world. And so that's kind of where I fit in on the marketing side of the house. And uh, so, and hiring is the last thing. Like, you, you, like everyone loves talking about how important hiring is. Like, no one talks about like, yeah, you like have to like have funding first, dude. But uh, like, hiring is like critical. So uh, we're we're pretty like uh, we're at the team. We're going to be at until Series A for the most part. So, um, but the the first three months after you raise capital, it's you're very very focused on on hiring and uh, getting the right people on the team that really believe in the vision and like are, are there to put in the work. Uh, from an early stage operator perspective. So Brian, if you're a company run by two co-founders who are both in the army, uh, do you have like a boot camp for all new employees? You know, like you send them out <laughs> somewhere in the middle of nowhere, they have to put on, you know, what do they call the, the outfit that you guys wear? Yeah, do, you, do your employees have a minimum deadlift they have to, have to work at the company? <laughs> Yeah, when it was just Drew and I, we used to be like, okay, we definitely have the highest bench wrap, deadlift, and squat combo of, on average, just like any company we know of. So that's pretty good. <laughs> it's got to be something like um, like Drew and I used to have our first meeting in the gym, like at like five thirty. Uh, just really leaning into some of those concepts, but uh, no, like the the employees, our employees, thank God, thank goodness, uh, are very very different from Drew and I uh, on purpose. Right, like incredibly diverse team uh, from a lot of different backgrounds to come in and question them, like some of the like norms and conceptions that, that, that Drew and I had. And like diversity of thought is one of our one of our eight operating principles that we roll with. And like we really look to bring in people that like are not yes men or women, but like are first principle thinkers. Uh, and like, if we told them to go to a boot camp, they'd be like, "Why? Like, don't go into a boot camp to sell jewelry, dude?" Uh, but like, you can't imagine a jeweler or designer, like, yeah. I mean, that's just like the opposite of their day to day. Yeah, is going to a boot camp. Yeah, and, like, but, I, but not shower What I think is so interesting about, I mean, Drew, Drew comes from the industry, right? So like, and he grew up in the jewelry industry, uh, worked in it after his time as the army. However, like, what I would say is. Like, we have a bunch of like jewelry veterans, uh, like like long career professionals in the company now. But I think Drew and I's background allowed us to completely question like everything these jewelers were telling us. Uh, which like uh, almost every one of them said that we couldn't do what we're doing. Like it's impossible. Like you could, like the production was impossible. You couldn't find the the right talent. Like all this stuff. And so like when I think about and you probably think about this too, Tom, from a as a someone that spends some time with an investment professional, like there are a, a couple there, there's in the quad of like, do people agree with this idea? People not agree with this idea. Like if you're a, a non-consensus investor, uh, that is one of the only ways to beat the market, right? Like it's necessary, but not sufficient. Uh, but you have to be non-consensus and correct. And so in our view, we were very non-consensus in the jewelry community where folks told us like, this isn't possible, but from a first principles approach, we broke it down into its steps and the people. And like, it was, it, it, we, we thought it was, and it is right. Like, um, and, uh, from a customer perspective, 
they said like, oh yeah, we love this, but like it doesn't feel real. And so you, you had to actually go out and build and deliver this this unique process to, to deliver uh, one of the kind of custom engagement rings for folks to try on in a week. Uh, and so I think we were not consensus in the community and our customers tell us we're right. And so, so we hope that's the case in the long run. I love that. And I, I love that you distilled it like so clearly, you know, seeing even your journey over the past 12 months of kind of defining value prop, having like an amazing product and then kind of figuring out what the target market was. It seems like now it's just, it's so crisp. It's so clear, you know, like, and Jake and I personally experienced that. So I'm curious, you, you started going to investors like pretty early on, right? Now you're kind of a serial entrepreneur who has been in many investment committee meetings. How do you convince these guys to give you money? <laughs> That's uh, that is the key question, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I think, I think what's important is if you're just getting into to startups, right? Understanding what the return profile is of these investors to know that you're a clean fit or not a clean fit. Um, and to understand that unlike a bell curve, right? Like uh, venture is about like power law, right? And so one company in their portfolio will make their entire fund or all of their funds, right? Like, um, I guess you insert a cool power law graph here, uh, like a bell curve <laughs> transitioning to a power law. Um, and so you have to be, as an individual, somebody that is interested in and willing to take that shot and then do the mental work to understand what it would take to do that. And so I have, as a, as a baseline, like been somebody that wants to build a very large business uh, to fix a problem that I think is real for a lot of consumers. Uh, to make their lives considerably better and then to scale that to as many lives as possible. And you have to have a business model and approach and a vision that makes that true. Um, if, if you don't, if you can't create an outsized outcome, but the problem is real, like you should just finance the business another way. And like, that's awesome. And like, you'll live an amazing life. Um, but understanding the expected return profile of an investor and that your vision for the company of you and another dude that bench presses together in the morning matches that return profile is critical, right? Uh, and once you're over that hurdle, right, which is like, uh, you're a cup, you're like, you're like two books away and like, you're like as educated as any of your investors on like the return profile, right? Like hmm. the, the next step is bringing something to the investor that is unique, differentiated and a view of the world that you and they want to see. And if you can provide a clear story and a vision for a different world, the, what the future looks like, and invite them in to be a part of it, that's exciting. So hmm. that's what we try to do, and that's what, we're, that's what we are doing here at Woe, is like, what, right, right now, like our entry point problem is, is all about creating the world's best engagement and shopping experience. There are almost, there are very few, there's about three experiences in life that every human goes through. And this is, this is one of them, right? This engagement experience. Hmm. And so like about creating a company that will touch everybody's life that you know at some point that kind of passes through this moment. The fact that like this, this hasn't been made like fantastic, incredible, celebrated experience for couples is wrong. And we're gonna fix that. Hmm. But that's just the starting point, right? For us, once we capture that couple, provide them an amazing experience, we wanna be with them for life. So. While we're focused on custom engagement rings today, we will be the lifelong jeweler for the digitally native consumer. And in that, we already know, Jake and Tom, what you and your partner's preferences are better than you do, probably. We've already nailed it once. You do. Longer. You actually so, do. <laughs> I've given you this feedback a few times. When you, and and we, we also happen to have collected those data points along the way because we want to be able to serve you a great first, second, third year anniversary Valentine's and Christmas gift. And so all you have to do is log into your world portal, have a few options, not a million options, a couple easy options right there in accordance with your partner's preferences, ready there for you to buy because we know what you love and we know that you are there to celebrate your love together. And we want to be the partner that provides that for you. We've already helped you get it right once. We're going to do it again. And so like that is truly what world is going to provide for people is a way for couples to get their first purchase right, the first of many large decisions in their life, this engagement ring, 
and then allow them to celebrate their love at every occasion as the go-to spot for their for their uh, jewelry. Amazing. Well, Brian, I, I, the case is clear how you managed to sell them to give you money. I mean, I, I'm sold. If I had any money to give, it, it would be <laughs> Uh, so you know what's interesting you mentioned I, I dabbled I, and I can only use that term lightly dabbled in venture investing you know and d- during my my time um, you know exploring that that kind of path in health tech specifically but what was so fascinating is it was the investment decisions were almost equal part company like how good is this company how much do we believe in this market this addressable market and the opportunity size here equal part market slash company and team. So like, who are the people leading this effort, right? And so I find it fascinating. I mean, you and Drew clearly are really rocking and rolling here. But I'm curious, how, how do these investors that you're working with get a sense for you both as people, as humans? Um, did they take you out to like their cabin in like upstate Wisconsin and, um, you know, sit around a campfire and uh, go hunting? Like, what are the ways in which they kind of manage to get a, a true pulse on who you were. Yeah, every investor has, has a different approach. Uh, I've, I've gone to long dinners. Uh, I've gone just a series of Zoom calls, right, uh, depending on, on the firm. Uh, and then they always, they always diligence call and uh, they, don't, they don't tell you they're gonna diligence call ahead of time. Uh, I have had like old commanders from the military diligence call about me, right? Like, I, like, like folks I hadn't talked to in years, right? Like, and like they're asking them like, and they don't really like know the questions. They're they're like they're like, has Brian like, you guys like in combat together? And they're like, you don't really ask those questions, dude. Like, uh, just some, really <laughs> stuff. Uh, some funny stories come back to me after the fact. But uh, uh, and so I, I think the first part right is, um, do you pass the test of is this is this somebody that like I would like to represent our portfolio? Right, and you can distill that out of a few meetings and time that you spend with folks that. You know, is this someone that that is genuine that if if they fail I will still have been proud to back them and I, I think uh, that is a test of, of people as sort of individuals about uh, being kind uh, but being able to make hard decisions uh, probably you know that's what most folks many people don't care about being kind uh, my investors really care about people being good people and being kind at least the ones that have selected me uh, so uh, that's that's really critical uh, and i think one of the things i've seen a lot of founders struggle with right is is you know i've been by the way i've been told no by hundreds of venture capitalists like um and they all say the same thing right it's like we invest we invest in people right like we invest in teams and when they say no it's like super personal because it's like oh, okay like uh your thesis is you invest in teams you met me, we spent time together, your answer is no, right? Like, um, and that happens hundreds of times. Uh, and so like in that, uh, I think it's like, it can be very personally discouraging for early, early founders, uh, even like, even in your like 30s still. Uh, so like you have to yeah. over, as a young person founder or a young founder period, you kind of have to like over segment on company and product and group of what you're able to prove and bring to market. And you have to do so in a more consistent and repeatable way. And you have to hmm. create these touch points over a longer time horizon than if you were, you know, imagine yourself 25 years in the future and that's who you're competing against, right? Because there is, there, that version of you exists and they're pitching to venture capitalists, right? And so like, yeah, like that person- It's like John like, Connor, Terminator, like yeah, some like, time yeah. travel. And like. so like, that's like, <laughs> that's how you like have to like not take it personally. It's just realize like you don't have the reps as a human that other people have. And like, that's okay. That just means that like, you have to be so much further ahead on product discovery and what you deploy to market and the traction that you, you gain and just, just understand as like somebody that's like under 35, like you are going to have to be well ahead of somebody that's like 50 and was a serious VP of Procter and Gamble and already has the network to sell their product into because they reported to them. Right. It's just, it's just a different scenario. And it's, and it's not that it's fair or unfair. Like the DC needs a 10 to 100 next return and you have to prove to them right with reasonable certainty that you're going to be the person that gets them there and uh traction is a way to do that as a as a young person nice uh i do want to hit on a very just 
pointed, like short answer, like, okay, you're, you've decided you're going to raise venture capital. You have kind of put your deck together, at least an outline to show folks when you hop on a call. Um, how many, how big is your target of VCs or people that you're reaching out to? And then like, how do you start prospecting? Like, how do you go outbound to start setting up meetings? Because it's, it's effectively, it's a function of that, right? You put your list together, you load them into your email, you write an email, and then you wait for responses and schedule meetings. Like, how many how many people are you reaching out to? Yeah. I'm going to break it. So 100 could be the short answer, right? Like, um, <laughs> if, you, if you want one, I've never managed to do it. Like, uh, some people put these crazy top of funnel metrics on the, the question, like any sales funnel, is like, how many opportunities in a short amount of time do you need to be successful? And then you sort of backwards plan from there. And so I think within a two-week time span, you should be aiming for a minimum of 30 ops. Opportunities meaning I sat across the table or Zoom room from an investor that can allocate capital, and I will get, I will get them to a yes or a no. Right, I'm not going to do a maybe. And so it's like, how do you backwards plan to get 30? There are, it's very different to load up prospects that are cold versus load up prospects that are, you formed a relationship with or that your mentor is very close with and has like promised to get you in touch with. So you really are prepping tactically 90 days out from your pitch window at a minimum, like to set those calls up and you are beginning your touch point cadence with really as many as many possible investors that fit your thesis uh you fit their thesis that are in the right deck size early doing your coffee chat with them ahead of your pitch window right like letting them know what you're up to and telling them where you're going to be at in two or three months when you're actually raising capital and like that's that's how you do it because if I show up today and I tell Tom Pittenger, "Hey, like I know you're, I know you're, you know, investing angel capital in three months. I'm going to have X in revenue," and you tell a hundred people that, and then in three months you have X in revenue, all of a sudden you're the guy that follows through and you do it because mm. there's going to be a hundred other founders that tell them and they're going to overproject too. You're going to say, "Oh, I'm going to be." We're gonna be a two million dollar run rate. It's like, no, you're not, dude. Like, you have any raised capital? Like, uh, maybe you will. Maybe you type. Um, but uh, you you project what you are ninety percent confident you're gonna be able to do. You turn back and you deliver on what you promised to that individual. And so it's it's less about okay, how big should my top of funnel be, uh, which is critical, but it's more about how can I increase my conversion rate of that top of funnel. Top of Funnel is, an, is, a, is a product of network, which I know is, is very important to this, this show, but it's like, how can I increase the conversion rate of that Top of Funnel as much as possible with the tactics of what I do, which is follow through with the things that you're going to say and then be prepped with really, really good follow-on messaging to entice and close, get to a yes or a no. Absolutely. Yeah, that was awesome. That's, that's probably one of the more important reframes that I think a lot of like early founders get wrong is they think about it from a sales funnels perspective instead of like, hey, this is what I need to be doing three to six months in advance. I think kind of segueing into our next question, you know, we want to be talking about leveraging networks. Uh, you're probably one of the people that have seen this do really, really, really well, uh, especially leveraging the existing West Point network. There are a lot of entrepreneurs that want to support entre other entrepreneurs that are younger guys coming up. Um, you know, that that's existing to you. But at the same time, I've seen, even with a strong network like that, how much work you've had to put into that behind the scenes. Um, you know, how do you kind of think about, you know, you just got out of the army, you're starting this company, you got a little bit of traction, you're ready to raise capital, you know you want to raise capital this year at some point, whether that be in the next three to six months. How are you kind of starting to build uh, and then leverage that network uh, that you know is going to kind of carry you. Even if they don't personally invest, they're going to introduce you to somebody who might invest or they might be a customer or however. How do you think about building and leveraging your networks and kind of like even to the minute details of how do you keep track of them? Like, are you, do you have these people in a CRM 
you know, do you have them on some kind of cadence? Like, of course, you have your friends, but, you know, we only have, like, a small group of friends that we really talk to on a regular basis. Yeah, it's a great question, and I think one that folks talk about abstractly, so I will try to tackle it in the opposite way, which is which is incredibly <laughs> tactically, right? So I use <laughs> I think it's helpful, right? And I think the earlier you yeah. start doing this, the better. Uh, I use, I use AirTipity. Right? It's a very simple CRM. Um, everyone that I talk to, and I usually do this on a, every two months, I'll look back on my Google Calendar. I'll look at who are the people that I have conversations with. Is this someone that I would ever want to talk to again? And like... Um, I, I'll, I will write a quick note. I'll drop their name, their email, some quick context in our conversation. Uh, and if there's like something I remember that if, like, whether like it's got a kid named Mirabelle or a dog or, uh, he loves like the Yankees, I'll drop that in there too. Um, I do it in big, big batches. It doesn't take that much time to do it that way. Like a lot of people feel like keeping a personal CRM is like this huge chore or you have to like create this like crazy automated system. Like Google calendars got it in there for you. Like it was all the meetings you ever did. Just like every once in a while, like, fill it out, right? Uh, and in this, like, you create your own email list of, like, your network and, like, people that, like, give a shit about you, essentially, uh, or who are at least interested in, enough in you to give you 30 minutes of their time. Uh, and a part of that is being someone, like, every time I take a call with somebody, like, I want them to leave thinking, like, wow, like, this is an individual that I am curious to know what they're up to in this journey, and I promise folks... I'll keep you updated from time to time on what we're doing, and I really do appreciate your time because it is incredibly meaningful for people to help our early-stage founders. Um, in that, right, you have your list, and as you start thinking about updates, right, it's like I, there's there's approaches that I've seen that are better than mine, which is folks send, like, quarterly, like, life updates. Um, to me, that's, uh, that, that's, that's, that's more squared away than I am, right? I just, like, keep that list as... Uh, as a list of connectors, right? And so I, I always ask people when I leave a call, like, is there anyone that I could connect you with that would be helpful? And hmm. in that, right, I now start to become a node over time of somebody that knows high caliber individuals. And I will connect like, you know, Jake to a marketing agency or a PR agency or a contractor for XYZ, right? It's like not just investors, it's, it's you know, talented humans. And then you start to over time become a source for talented humans and people that really appreciate getting introduced to great talent. And so like, that's one of the ways in my network that I choose to add value. I don't necessarily make it like a constant, Hey, here's what I'm doing, but like, let me, let me refer people business. Um, so that's my approach. And then in that list, right? Like I specifically, I always know like who the angels and VCs are. And I have a growing and long list of those individuals that will receive company updates and, hang out on a separate version of the quarterly investor update on the BCC line. That's a little more personalized. So like less maybe company confidential information, more like hey, broad strokes kind of here's what we're up to. And in that I become a valuable asset to an investor because investors value is based on deal flow. And so because I'm giving them an update on what the company is and I'm not asking for anything, I am providing value to that list of people. And then when I, want to you know, potentially get value from them, um, I've already given value in exchange. And the second thing I do as a connector, specifically to VC at Angels, is like I, as I provide a lot of introductions for entrepreneurs, I always have them tell me when they're raising capital. And I will know ahead of the market when a great top 1% entrepreneur is going to raise capital, and I will connect them with an investor or investors that I think are high value but may not have gotten access to that deal. And so this is where you start to become really, really valuable to your network of VCs and investors. And you become a network of top 1% deals to who I believe maybe underrated investors or vice versa, top investors to entrepreneurs who I think are underrated. And in bridging that gap, right, your Airtable list starts to grow in length and then grow in value. Uh, and so those are sort of the two things. You can have a list of a thousand people that you don't provide value to. You can have a list of 500 people who you are constantly providing value to. Uh, and you know, you grow that over time and, uh, and, and breadth and depth. So tactically, like that's, I use Airtable. I connect the people on the Airtable to people who need them. Uh, and I just do that over time as a 
practice and a habit because I am a kind of person that wants to help people. So it's like not an extra chore for me. Um, I set like a portion of my time on a weekly basis. Love that. That's lethal, dude. I love it. Nice. (laughs) Yeah. It's so many elements of, I mean, you mentioned humanity and um, I mean, just so many elements of like virtuous living there, you know, just being compassionate and thoughtful and um, toward others and like translating that into business. I, I think that's really interesting that empathy leads to success, you know? Um, where you think cold calculation is what has gotten so many people to where they are. Yeah, I, I like agree with that like ten times over, Tom. Like, like I think I think empathy is one of the most underrated assets that you can have. Uh, it's all like uh, I like ramped out the empathy charts when I like you have to go through these uh, if you go through these psych evaluations to get into the Ranger Regiment. Uh, and like they almost like didn't let me in. They're like, "Whoa, dude, you got a lot of feelings." Um, <laughs> I'm like, "I know," uh, uh, but it's true. Like when I like, uh, and, I, and I like when I'm on call, like a client or a customer, like I, like I feel what they're feeling. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. And it's like I want to fix their problem so bad. It's a little like emotionally exhausting if you don't like sleep. Uh, so you get your seven to eight hours in and like reset your brain. But but in that, like it is a genuine desire to to help people when you can. Uh, and I think there's also in, in that as, as someone, I, I put a lot of value and weight on the introductions that I provide people, right? And so I like, I'll never make an introduction that's not valuable for two people. And so a part of being like a high empathy networker is like telling an entrepreneur, like this, this I can't, give this deck to anybody like it's not good enough um, and like you should know that so you can like you feel free to like go fundraise a hundred other people are also going to tell you no but like I'm not going to say like oh yeah give me the deck I'll take a look at it and pass it around if I'm not going to I'll just tell you like this is bad and your market is not big enough for this asset class so if you are going to be in this market like go elsewhere and like I truly wish you the best of luck I think that kind of feedback is also um, something that like requires a high level of empathy because I actually care what happened to that person after I leave that meeting. Uh, I'm not just trying to get through it and have them like me. Like I want them to be successful, and sometimes that requires you to to like not send out intros that don't add value and, and not act like things are going to be okay when they're not. Do people ever respond really poorly when you tell them? Their deck's not good enough. <laughs> so I, what, I, what I would say is, like, yes, is the short version of that. Um, but it doesn't make it less true. Uh, but it doesn't make it less hard to hear as a founder, right? Because this person put a lot of time into this deck and into this business and some of their own money. And it's, it's incredibly hard. And when you are getting advice from non-founders in particular, uh, it's extra hard to swallow because you're like this person like doesn't know what i put into this so like what i found is important in life is just like acknowledging the point that people are have made it to and like how hard that is and that like what you want for them is the same thing that they want for themselves and there might be someone that will love that deck and don't let me stop you but i i can't give it to somebody else with like in good faith I love that. So, Brian, I, I want to ask a hard-hitting question. You, you've been top 10% at West Point. You, you're now part of you know top 1% of society that's raising millions of dollars and you know CEO. Have there been times where you haven't been at the top of the bell curve? Yeah, I can tell you that as a seed stage founder, you do not feel like you're top of the bell curve. Uh, like, <laughs> like there's companies IPOing every day, raising Series A or B or C. Or, like, it's all like a matter of perspective uh, I would say I've been trying to do a better job of measuring myself from a bell curve perspective against myself right and did I this day week or month right do the right things for myself as a person and the business and and do I feel like I was a top one percent performer um, for the business and like for my health and if I can do that, I'm, I'm on top of the bell curve. And uh, I, I think that's super, super critical for folks because you can be on top of the bell curve as an 18 or a 22 year old or a 25 year old. 
Um, you just have to you know, be honest with yourself and also not be too hard on yourself when, when you're not. Like, that's okay, too, because, like, you're going to get another shot next week to regrade yourself and try to have the right inputs to, to have a top-of-the-bell curve week. And, like, next week could always be your week to be top of the bell curve. Um, and you, if you're getting a couple of those weeks a year, like, you're, you're, like, you're doing pretty well, and the rest of the year you're trying to get there, like, that's, that's all right, too. So um, I've had, like, professionally, from an external perspective, like, some, some highs and lows. Um, but I just don't think it's helpful to – I'm happy to talk about them, right? Like, but I, I just don't think it's helpful to think about your life by comparing these moments in time to other people by thinking about like what are your what are your inputs on this journey and how are you affecting those inputs to be the best version of yourself in this week not to get like super like philosophical with you uh, but i just think it's like uh you guys like are like labeled a bell curve and you're all about people like finding their max performance but like anyone can find that in a day week month or quarter of their own time regardless of if they're a VP at JP Morgan or a, a freshman at Cornell, like um, that's something that you achieve, like kind of within yourself, not uh, not in relation to others. Hmm. That's awesome, man. I'm, that's very, very well put. I also see behind the scenes how hard you put, uh, how much effort you put into the inputs. Um, I think you have a lot of patience for how long sometimes the inputs take. I think it's uh, you're more mature in that aspect than I am. I want things to happen quickly, and I want activity and move quickly. And um, sometimes I'll see you, like when we used to live together, um, four hours on a Saturday morning, just type emails, basically like going through your A table, you know, making connections. And I was like, man, that's it's a lot of work, dude. For maybe somebody <laughs> won't respond, um, but you knew it was important, and you you knew what the output could be if you put the right inputs in. Um, and I've just kind of see your touch points get better and better over time. Your conversations get better and better over time. Um, and it's just yielded so many dividends for you. And I think that's, if one thing our listeners can kind of get from the episode, it's, it's specifically that, like what you just kind of discussed. Um, and kind of moving into the last question, we want to get you out of here so you can have dinner with Trish, but, um, you know, last question, you know, it just, it's very general, you know, any advice to our listeners, you know, really says they're young, they're aspirational, you know, they want to be at the top of the bell curve, um, but they may not know what the future looks like for them. Kind of where you're sitting at now, thinking back over the last 10 to 12 years, you know, when you were starting college, what's kind of maybe one or two things that you would kind of impart um, or things even to kind of remind folks as they're going through their journey right now? Yeah, I would say it's okay to go non-consensus paths. Um, I think there's a lot of pressure at these schools at uh, Cornell and Harvard here in Boston. I work with some of the undergrads over there from time to time uh, to go to McKinsey or Goldman Sachs. Or, or, and if they don't, they're in trouble, right? Like if, if, like, if I were a 22-year-old graduating from any undergraduate institution, I would say like, go pursue, like have a low personal burn rate in life. Like don't live an extravagant life and like go pursue the, the things that are the most interesting to you. And in that, like you will gain expertise. And like, if you go do really, really interesting shit for five years and you perform well within that, like, and like you didn't make a bunch of money, like you can just go to B school because like you were the person that did the interesting things and like go to back to Cornell or, or like go to uh, Kellogg and like, like that's your, like you have the ultimate off ramp to like make money in life. Um, but like, and that's awesome. And like when you graduate from B school, you should also go do interesting stuff, but you will have experiences that will set you apart from your peers from a performer's perspective and you later on in your career, when you actually start to make real money, uh, that is going to be invaluable. So like, whatever that path is for you, that's like super interesting, like whether like you're going to like go try to grind and be a writer on SNL, like I want to after I, uh, after I sell the company here, or, 
<laughs> or like you're good. You'd be a great writer, honestly. You're you're quick. Well, yeah, yeah. That's uh, writer first, then we're gonna we're gonna make it on to uh, sketch some sketch comedy. But uh, that's post well post well uh, goals for me. But uh, yeah, just just pursue. Don't be afraid to pursue non traditional paths. And um, in that, the requirement is to like know yourself and know what you value. And so if you conquer that first, the non traditional path becomes so much easier, right? It's like you don't have the stress that like. You know, my roommate's going to JPM. He was making six figures out of college and X, Y, Z. It's like, dude, if like, you want to just jam out on Python, like do it. Like, um, and have enough money to live. And like, you're probably going to eventually build something awesome. So that's, uh, that's my generalist advice. Awesome, man. Brian, thanks so much for coming out, man, and, and for joining us here uh, on the podcast. Uh, you gave us some really awesome and actionable things that we could be doing. Uh, to kind of go against the grain to do something a little bit different um, and also just you know even if you do take a more traditional path I think Brian said a lot of stuff that you could use to enhance what it is you're doing in your life and your career um, you're at the top of the bell curve my friend you're in the 99th percentile and uh, loved having you cool. thanks guys cool. thanks for joining us this week on the bell curve if you love this episode go ahead Give us a follow and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. It would mean the world to Tom and I. We come up with new episodes every Tuesday at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Until next week.